morning, everybody. A couple days from now, on Tuesday, actually. Bring me down just a little bit, Stephen. Thank you. On Tuesday, December 17th, will be the 116th anniversary of Wilbur and Orville Wright successfully lifting their flying machine off the sands of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Now think of that. Just 116 years ago, humanity's age-old dream of taking to the sky was accomplished. And upon their uh, successful flight and successful landing, uh, these two triumphant brothers telegraphed back home to Dayton, Ohio, to share the news with their sister Catherine. The telegram was nine words. This is the text. Actually flew 120 feet. Stop. We'll be home for Christmas. Stop. Catherine was overjoyed. The boys had been on this quest. Her brothers had been on this quest for a number of years to um, make an aeroplane, as they called it, and to fly it successfully. She, she was so overjoyed at the news and recognizing uh, the historic import of the message, she rushed straight away over to the office of the local newspaper, crashed into the editor's office, and excitedly handed him the telegram. He took it from her, read it over, smiled paternalistically, and said, Oh, how nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. (laughs) He missed the scoop of his entire lifetime. Every time I read that story, I'm incredulous all over again. Two local boys had actually accomplished one of humankind's greatest dreams, but all that this editor could see was family news about Christmas. This morning, we're ten days out from the celebration of Jesus' birth, and I want to talk this morning about the importance of not missing the importance of the Incarnation. The importance of not missing the importance of the Incarnation. Now, in the midst of all of our Christmas preparations, our celebrations, even our Christmas meditations, let's make sure that we don't miss the staggering wonder and the the import of this central truth of the Christian message. God's Son took on flesh and dwelt among us. Now, to do that, I want to share a couple points with you. We'll be looking in John's Gospel, the first chapter. We've been in John's Gospel for the last several weeks, studying the these statements where Jesus says, I am. Uh, this morning, we're going to go back there again to the first chapter. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, would you open our hearts to the staggering wonder of this truth? And Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher? And we pray that you would uh, inform us, but not only inform us, Lord, we want to open our hearts to receive 
the reality of what you have done in coming near to us in the person of Jesus. And so, teach us, we pray, in his name. Amen. Now, two points. The first one is more theological. And uh, I want to talk about not missing the, the significance, the implications of the incarnation. Now, just by way of reference, it's Luke's gospel that records what we, what we generally refer to as the Christmas story. Mary and Joseph journeying from the north, Nazareth, where was their hometown, down to the city of Bethlehem, which was David's, I mean, was um, Joseph's hometown. There was no room for them in the inn. The baby is born in the stable out back. They lay the child in a manger. We also read in Luke's gospel of an angel messenger who explodes through the sky to these shepherds out on the hills surrounding, uh, surrounding Bethlehem. And he makes this announcement to them. Today is born to you in David's town a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then Luke goes on to tell us that at that announcement, the sky burst forth with a whole heavenly choir, an angelic choir, actually heaven's army, singing glory to God in the highest, glory to God in the highest where His throne is, and on earth, shalom, peace, salvation, wholeness, Come to humankind, come to men and women upon whom God's favor is now being expressed. We know it in traditional language, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Shalom to earth, salvation coming to earth because now God's favor is resting upon all of humanity. That's Luke's gospel. It contains the Christmas story. It's the narrative with the Concrete details, the shepherds, the angels, the young couple, no room in the end, the shepherds coming to see this Christ child. That's Luke's gospel gives us the Christmas story, but it's John's gospel. The language is is decidedly different. It's the language of philosophy or theology. We hear echoes of Genesis 1. It's the meter of epic poetry. And if you got your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John chapter 1. We're going to put the verses up on the screen. But I want to read verses 1 through 5, and then the most significant verse for this morning, verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, or the message, and the message was with God. The Construction of the Greek language there means was in close relationship with God. Was the word was closely, intimately aligned with God, and the word was God. The word itself, the, this message that John is telling us about, the message is also divine. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then skipping down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. The message became flesh and dwelt among us. The theological term that I'm using this morning is incarnation. It's a Latin word. It means literally to take on flesh, to appear with form or substance. And John is telling us that this eternal one, this invisible one, the one who was with God from the beginning, the one who was divine himself, now becomes a human being. And in in the incarnation, in the Christ child of Christmas, what before had only been spoken, the language that John is using here is the message, is the word. What had been only heard before, or only spoken before, is now also seen, becomes visible in human form and frame. And so in the life and person of Jesus, in His message, in His ministry, the truth that God wants humanity to know, the Word that God wants to speak to us, the message that the eternal God decidedly wants us to know is now being lived out before us in a human life. So it's not only heard, but also seen, made visible. Now, I want to reflect with you on a couple things here. First of all, let's think about the importance or the significance of what this says about us, about our world, and about how God works. We and us, me and you, what this says to us, that Jesus came to be with us, it says we are of utmost importance to the Most High. Now more about that in a moment. But also reflect with me on what this says about our world. The created realm, the material realm in which we live, of which we are a part, is of no little consequence to the Creator. It's important to Him. He entered it. It's so important to him that he came here as one of us. He didn't just come as a spirit, but he entered in bodily form. Now, the creation is never to be worshipped. And throughout the history of humankind, and we see it expressed again in our world today, many who have thrown off belief in God have made a religion out of the care of and the concern about revering the world around us. That belief system is certainly off. It's, it's out of center. We don't worship the creation, we worship the Creator. But so too is a what over the centuries at times has been a falsely Christian belief that, that acts as if the material realm, the earth upon which we live, the world in which we live, is of no concern. Well, the the incarnation puts the lie to that. The world, the earth is of such importance to God that He enters it in human form and frame. He becomes one of us. It's of utmost significance to God, this world that He's created. And it's to be cared for. It's to be stewarded well. He speaks to us about that in the book of Genesis. So, the, the incarnation says that we're of utmost significance to God. The creation itself is of great significance to the Creator. But the incarnation also speaks to us about something that's really important 
if we're going to understand this spiritual journey that God has called us to. It also proclaims to us that process is an unavoidable priority in the outworking of redemption's purposes. This This is such an important concept for us to grasp. It's really critical to our Christian lives Excuse me, that that we get this. I mean, we get frustrated at process. Uh, Just Friday night at the party, I was talking to someone, just checking in with her about her own progress and the journey that she's on. And she's been in a rough patch for the last year or so. And I asked her, like, how are things going? And she just looked at me and said, well, it's going. And uh, she talked to me about... um, you know, the the, um, the sessions that she'd been having with a counselor, and she said, it's, we're just stuck in process. Anybody ever been there? <laughs> and she was not particularly happy, and I can certainly understand that, because we can get frustrated with process. Why does it take so long? And we can get frustrated with God. We can get disappointed. We can get upset with Him. We can become resentful of the process. Because, like, after all, I mean, you're God. Why can't you just do it? (laughs) You are God. You could just do this. You could make a miracle. Anybody ever think those things? (laughs) But God is unalterably committed to process. It's not going to change. (laughs) Even when He works miraculously, He works in and through process. For example, Jesus was conceived miraculously in the virginal womb of a young maiden, young Jewish maiden named Miriam. She was probably 15 or 16 years old at the time. It was a miracle. But she carried that miracle in her womb for nine months. And when the baby was born, he came into this world the same way that every other baby has come into this world. He was birthed through a natural process. And as an infant, he got cold and hungry, and he needed to be held tight and wrapped up tightly. He needed to be fed, and his swaddling clothes needed changing. That's all process. The divine word became a baby and was birthed among us. And he grew, and he learned, and he made choices, and he said yes to his heavenly Father's calling. There's a 30-year process from when he was born to when he began his ministry. And that yes launched him onto the public stage, if you will. And then as he gathered disciples around him, he had to be patient with the halting, uncertain obedience of the disciples that he'd gathered around with him. It's process. So the next time I get frustrated with that, or the next time you get frustrated with that, you know, Lord, why, why does it have to be like this? Why do I have to go through this? You know, Lord, why does it take so long? Lord, what about what you promised me? I know you promised me this. I see it in your word and you spoke it to me by your spirit. Why can't we get there? Just remember, Jesus was incarnated in a baby's body. And all of redemption's plan was swaddled and cared for by a 16-year-old young woman whom God had selected 
to hold in her hands, in her arms, and watch over all of redemption's plan and purpose. The incarnation tells us God is committed to this. Second set of reflections. What is the incarnation saying to us? John 1 tells us about this in his message. John chapter 1, verse 14. As the Word took on human form and frame, John says, we beheld His glory. The glory is the effulgence, the shining, the splendor, the wonder of the unseen God made visible. And in Jesus, John is telling us the opening of his gospel, God not only tells us, but shows us who he is and what we are to him. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld, we saw his glory. And it's not, it's not I mean, I've said this many times, probably every Christmas for the last 33 years among you, but Jesus didn't have a halo over his head like we see on the Christmas cards. His face wasn't shiny. Isaiah tells us that his countenance was the same as an ordinary human being. And we certainly understand and pick that up as we read through the gospel. So how do we see God's glory? How do we see the shining? How do we see the effulgence? How do we see the splendor? that John talks to us about. Well, we see it in his actions. Jesus teaches God is love. Love one another, he says, as I have loved you. And then also he enfolds a leper in his arms. And that leper is healed. He bounces children upon his knee and says, don't stop the children from coming to me. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He bows down to help a woman caught in adultery and to release forgiveness to her and set her off on a new journey. And we see God's glory. He stretches out his arms on a cruel Roman cross. And we see God's glory. In Christ's actions is where we see the glory of God revealed. It's not... In contrast to you know, Jesus' own day and, and time and context, the glory of God is not contained in the religious legalism of the Pharisees of his day. Jesus castigates them and he calls them hypocrites and frauds. God's glory is revealed in him and how he treats people. He confronts the arrogance of Rome's power. The glory of Rome is what history calls out to us, but He confronts Pilate face to face there in Pilate's Roman governor's house in Jerusalem. And he shows Rome to be the sham that it is. And we see God's glory. It's not like the glory of this world. It's the glory of another world come to ours. He calms the storm that threatens his disciples and we see God's glory in his actions. He rebukes the demons that torment Mary Magdalene. And she's set free and made whole. And we see God's glory. And he welcomes the outcasts, the tax collectors, the harlots, the sinners. And in that, God says, you've seen my heart. You've seen my glory. 
God is so much for us. He came to be with us. He is so much for us. He became one of us. This is the message become flesh. This is what God wants us to know. I love you. I'm for you. I came to be with you. And my heart and my power is released in making you whole. John says, the message became flesh. And we have seen His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father who came from Him and is full of grace and truth. The second point I want to put before you is is more missional. The first was more theological. This one, I'll just say, let's just call it the importance of not reversing the incarnation. There's a famous story told about Martin Luther, the great leader of the Reformation. And the story reports that Luther was in his study writing. He was at work at his desk, maybe translating the Bible into German, possibly writing one of his many commentaries. But he's at his desk writing when Satan, the devil himself, manifests before him to challenge and to intimidate this courageous reformer. And as the story is told, Luther was not intimidated, but rather annoyed at the devil uh, breaking his concentration and coming into his study. And so he got so upset at the devil that he picked up his inkwell and threw it at him. I love that story. I don't know that it's true, but I love it. But someone has said that, you know, Luther threw an inkwell at the devil and the church has been throwing words at problems ever since. There's too much truth in that. We cannot reverse the incarnation and simply throw words at the brokenness, the problems, the issues the concerns of the world all around us. Jesus is the message who's become flesh. We can't take the message that's been acted out in life and turn it back only into words again. Now, whenever I preach on this theme, I have to be very, um, I don't know if the word's careful, but I have to be very kind because I'm more tempted and prone to this than anybody else who's here. I mean, think about it. My whole life is made up with words. I'm a student of the Word. I'm a preacher and a writer. I'm a practitioner of wordsmithing. So much of my life in ministry revolves around words. I teach. I preach. I, I counsel. I write. I offer direction or opinions. So much of my life is wrapped up in words. Someone can bring a real issue to my attention, a real problem that they're facing, a weighty concern, a wrong that needs to be righted. And my first inclination, actually my, it's a temptation, but my first inclination is to say, oh, you know, I preached a sermon on that. <laughs> no one's ever found that particularly helpful in the moment. <laughs> or, you know, actually I've written an article about that. Let me see if I can find it in my files. Maybe we ought to have a class on that. Or at the very, at the very least, 
If someone raises a concern or a challenge or an issue before me, at the very least, I can always say, oh, I have an opinion about that. I've got lots of opinions. But what have I done? I've delivered myself of a few words. Maybe I've salved my conscience by expressing a heartfelt opinion. Isn't it amazing how many people feel better after they vomit all over everybody else on their Facebook account? What have they actually accomplished? Just added more pollution to the world. Made an argument. John tells us about this message that he actually took on flesh and acted. And here's the money phrase of John 1. There's so many money phrases in that first chapter, but this is the one that always grabs me. In him was life. And his life became the revelation for all the rest of humanity. The Word became a human being. And in something that we know and understand, we saw life. And in that was revealed God's glory. The Word became flesh. And we saw God's glory. And the genius of this plan of redemption is that the incarnation was never intended to be simply a theological word. It was never intended merely to be a doctrine or a one-off with Jesus. No. This same Jesus who declares in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world, says to his disciples and to us in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. He came as the light. But in his light, he says you become light. So shine. And at the close of John's Gospel, John says to his disciples and to us, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And then he breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So the message that was incarnated in the Son and lived out before the disciples, before Jesus goes to be with the Father in heaven after His work on the cross and His resurrection, He gathers His disciples again there in the upper room, and He says, as the Father has sent Me, I'm sending you. <sighs> Receive of My Spirit. And do what? Go incarnate the message. Live it out before the world around you. That they too might see the glory of the Father. I just learned recently that when a new believer is baptized in China, the proclamation is made over him or over her and to all the gathered witnesses. Like we could do this the next time we have baptism service here. When the, when the, the new convert comes up out of the water, the proclamation is made, now the Lord has a new heart with which to love. Now the Lord has another pair of hands to employ in His world. Now the Lord has another set of eyes with which to see that which needs grace and redemption. And now the Lord has another pair of feet with which to go. 
The incarnation was never intended to be a mere doctrine about Christ, to stall out with Him, or worse yet, to be reversed by His followers by turning what was life and action back into mere words. No. We're too called to be an incarnation of the reality of this grace that we have tasted. I ran across a nautical term a while back that I think applies here. The word is cavitation. Cavitation comes from the realm of speedboating. It it occurs when a high-speed propeller loses connection or bite with the water. And when this occurs, it results in a partial vacuum, loss of thrust, and excessive shaft speed that threatens to burn the motor out. In short, the propeller is not connecting with the water, and there's no more movement. Cavitation is what happens when we reverse the incarnation. I want to shift gears here as I bring this to a close, just to contextualize what I've been talking about this morning. I believe the Lord has been graciously moving in our midst. I know that the Lord's been graciously moving in our midst in this community called Wellspring over the last several months. He's brought us through a season where there was not nearly enough bite or connecting with the needs, the opportunities of the people, the communities, the world around us. We've been in a season of cavitating, if you will. Partial vacuum, loss of momentum, excessive shaft speed, which can cause internal burnout. And I'm very much aware there's all kinds of reasons for this, not least of which my own role being no small part But God's been very gracious to us. And in these last several months, He's been breathing upon us afresh. He's been speaking to us afresh. He's been renewing the call, the mission, the saving, transforming message. Once again, it's time to live it out. Once again, it's time to pick it up. Once again, it's time to engage to be the life that reveals light. As Pastor Wes and Kevin and myself have been sharing with you over these last several months, the Lord, we've watched Him. And we've been reporting this to you in real time as it's been happening. Simply because it's not been our doing, it's been His doing. We've just been standing up here before you and say, this is what God did this past week. This is what He's been speaking to us. This is what He's been saying to us. This is where we believe He's calling us. This is what we believe He's doing. He's been breathing on this situation. He's been calling us back to the future. We've been talking to you about that. He's been putting an open door before us to reclaim the calling that's never lifted from this congregation. This is the yes that He's been talking to us about. Pastor West spoke about that very powerfully about three weeks ago. What's he asking of us? Well, it begins with a yes. We're not sure all that it means, but we know it begins with yes. Yes, Lord, I'm willing. Yes, Lord, I'll re-engage. Yes, Lord, I'm I'm in. In our staff prayer meeting a few weeks ago, we came actually on the Tuesday after Pastor West spoke, and, and he talked about the financial need that we had. 
But he was very clear to say, and I want to be very clear to say, this is not just about the financial need that we have ending the year in the black. By the way, the offerings have been awesome over the last several weeks. I just want to say thank you. But it starts with this yes. It's not just about, well, we need to end our budget in the black. No, it's about reclaiming what God has placed upon this congregation, what God's been renewing in this congregation, what God's calling us back to. And we don't know exactly all that it means, but we know it, 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 it begins with a yes. And so some of you spontaneously came to the altar that Sunday. He, he, was, he didn't actually, I was with him in the prayer meeting before we, he came out to preach. He said, I don't know how to close this. Some of you just came to the altar and put money on the altar. And then more of you came, and then more of you came. We, if you were here, you remember that. If you were here the next Sunday, we reported on that. And it's not about the money, it's about the yes. And so that following Tuesday in our staff meeting, as we were gather, we gather every Tuesday morning to pray for the ministry, to pray for one another, to pray for you, I brought in an offering plate. Somebody said, are you going to take an offering? I said, no, we're going to pray for those who gave. We're going to pray for you. You. We're going to pray for the yeses that were made. The people who said, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. I'm with what the Lord's doing. And it was an extraordinary time of prayer as we just gave thanks for you. Inspired by you. Moved by you. Encouraged by you. Committed with you. Saying yes to the the grace that God has spoken to us. The season of cavitating is over. It's time once again for the propeller to connect with the needs of the world around us. We don't need any more excessive shaft speed. What we need is thrust and momentum. And that's the open door that's before us. This incarnational calling and mission is what Christmas is all about. It's not just Christmas, it's the whole venture. It's why Jesus came. It's why He came to us. It's why He came to be one of us. Now that newspaper editor in Dayton, Ohio, 116 years ago, he missed it big time. (laughs) It's wonderful the boys are coming home for Christmas. I hope hope we all have an awesome Christmas. But let's not forget the import, the invitation, the significance, the calling of the Incarnation. He's come to us to be one of us, to show us that God is for us. And from that place, He then calls us and fills us and sends us. And this open door is before us, and I'm so thankful I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to close with a prayer. And I want to first give you an opportunity to respond in your own heart to what the Lord's been saying to you this morning. Maybe you've been frustrated with process. And you need to let go of that frustration and just find where you can partner with the Lord in it and say yes to that. Or maybe it's just to reaffirm 
your yes to the calling that God has upon your own life or upon us as a family together and say, yes, Lord, I'm in. I'm ready to go back to the future and go through that open door that you've placed before us. Father, we present ourselves before you. We're so thankful for your plan. We're in wonder of how you envisioned it, how you fulfilled it in the coming of a baby. We thank you for what we've seen in and through Jesus. And Lord, we want to present ourselves to you. We would manger your spirit. We would manger your purpose. We would make room for your presence. That in us might be your life. And that it might be the revelation, the light to those around us. Lord, let it be, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.